Baseball Talk is brought to you by Joy for Sports, 435 Durham Street East in Walkerton, for all your sports needs. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Here we are with another great episode of Baseball Talk. I have the ever baseball-wise Rob Whiteman in studio with me to uh, co-host once again. And uh, welcome back, Rob. Great to be back. Nice. And once again, we've lined up another uh, great uh, guest to talk baseball with us. This time, it is Rob McCoy, head coach of the Niagara University Purple Eagles baseball program. It's a Division One program out of Lewiston, New York. And... Uh, just let me get him on the line here. Are you with us, Rob? I am. Nice. Uh, welcome to the show. And uh, first of all, uh, I guess we'll we'll jump right in there. Uh, this is the time uh, time of year in the fall where the team is just kind of getting itself uh, organized and in, uh, in shape. So, uh, how are things looking for the Purple Eagles right now? Yeah, they're going all right. I mean, we're, we're a little young on the position player side of things. We lost uh, quite a bit offensively last year, so. A lot of our a lot of our time's been spent trying to get our young guys up to speed, so it's going all right. And then our pitching staff is going to have to carry us this year, and they're doing well. So we're excited about them. We've got some talent on that, on that side of the ball. Nice. And uh, as far as I understand, you guys are allowed to play. Uh, your main season happens in the spring. In the fall, as it stands, you're allowed to play. Is it what two preseason games and in, in one? There's an exemption there if you play an international team. That's correct, yes, sir. So uh, what, what do you have lined up for the fall? So we just played um, this past sun- Sunday. We played St. Bonaventure University, which is down here by us, and um, and it went well. We, we, we'd only been in fall practice for a handful of days, and um, we made we made mistakes. But I like the way our, we didn't stop playing. We played, it's 14 innings. They don't, they don't have a cap on the innings. <laughs> so we we just kept playing, um, and it went well. It was good. It good. Expo- it was good exposure for our young players. Next weekend or this upcoming weekend, we have Post University with the D two in Connecticut. They're going to bring their team up to play, um, and we have the Ontario Terriers that day as well. So we've played the Terriers and Dan Thompson's organization goes out of the baseball zones. Um, for the last probably the last seven or eight years now, the Ontario Terriers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, sorry, uh, it was uh, you were breaking up there a little bit when you mentioned uh, the D two school you were playing there. Uh, who, who was that? Oh yeah, Post University out of Connecticut. Oh, okay, so that's kind of neat. Uh, get a little taste there and. I guess, of course, for your rookies and stuff, they don't use any uh, eligibility if they play in those uh, fall games, do they? Yeah, they used to, and they just changed that rule to now where they do not. So that that's a huge help because now we can take a look at guys that maybe might you know we might need to redshirt or, or you know find out kind of what role we see for them in the, in the spring. Yeah, and gives you a better handle on uh, on what you're dealing with there. Um, exactly. Now, uh, moving on from the season here a little bit, let's get into a little bit about your pathway to uh, becoming the Niagara University um, Purple Eagle head coach because quite often you see a pattern where uh, players go back to the their old programs 
and uh, you know will be a graduate volunteer and then eventually become an assistant coach, then a coach. But uh, you you yourself did not play at Niagara, so describe a little bit your pathway to becoming a coach. Yeah, I I grew up in Oregon and went to junior college ball in Portland for two years, and then finished my own career in NAI in South Dakota, South Dakota Westland. And while I was there, the AD had been a Division One head coach. I really wanted to be at the Division One level. So I, I kind of leaned on him and kind of got started on it. And I went to graduate school at the University of Virginia, and after that, I was down in Virginia because that's kind of where he knew people. And I ended up getting a volunteer job at Dr. Madison, and I had met the head coach at Niagara at the time down there working camp, and he hired me to come up to his assistant. And after two and a half years, I took over as the head coach. Um, and so I've come a long ways. I've traveled a lot of miles. But, um, it, it's just, it was just my desire to be a Division One coach, and then I tried to do the best I could where I was. And that kind of led me to what I am now. Okay. Now, I know you played at uh, Dakota Wesleyan University um, yourself. And uh, yep. uh, you, didn't, you didn't play uh, at... Virginia when you were a graduate there, though, correct? No. 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 Um, so from Dakota Wesleyan, um, and I believe you also, too, you were you were an academic All-American uh, or NA1A academic All-American when you were there also. Yeah, yeah. I was always, uh, I was always decent at the book. <laughs> that, that's interesting because uh, we've had another uh, NA1A coach on. We had a guy called uh, Rob Pegg on who uh, – coaches out in California, but he also, uh, he was an academic uh, All-American at his NA1A school too, so it seems to be uh, a good number of the people uh, going through that pathway to coaching uh, also take care of uh, being good students, I guess, too, which makes sense, right? You have to be organized and manage your time and all of that stuff, so yeah, it seems to be a common trait there. Um, Yeah, I think it it, it takes it's just the kind of you know the leadership qualities and the kind of things that you that you that you represent. You also reinforce, which helps you you know it helps you it helps you coach for sure. And when when you played at uh, D- uh, Dakota Wesleyan, uh, what position did you play? Uh, I was an outfielder. I played center field. Outfield. Uh, I was just wondering because uh, you know how often it seems to be the catchers right uh, end up going into the coaching. <laughs> Um, now, how much consideration did you give to uh, pursuing the pro ball dream? Um, yeah, I, it, it was kind of interesting. I mean, I was never going to be a pro. I, mean, I think we all think we're going to at some point. But um, I think when I got to junior college, because I went to a really small school, and we didn't have – I thought we had good baseball at the time, but we really didn't have it. So I got to junior college, and I got to with all the – with all the Portland city kids in a big city, and I was, and I, I uh, saw really quick where I was in the pecking order. <laughs> you, so you kind of reassessed your your goals and dreams type thing. Yeah, and I and that was fine. You know, I really enjoyed my career, and um, you know, it's baseball we had ups and downs, but I, I, you know, I geared my immediately in college for being a coach so it didn't take long to figure that part out 
So you got an early jump on it. Nice. Yeah. Uh, now getting in back into uh, your coaching with Niagara, um, you've had well, actually, even going before that, when you were a graduate assistant, uh, sorry, not graduate assistant, but uh, a volunteer assistant with James Madison, and then into your time with Niagara, you, there seems to be a track record there that the teams you're involved with um, have some outstanding hitting going on. I know when you were at James Madison, uh, they set some records, uh, program records, and uh, threw up some great numbers as far as home runs and doubles. And uh, I know uh, you've had a lot of individual success with batters at uh, Niagara since you've been there. Uh, we're going to talk about him in a moment, but you know Greg Cullen being a shining example of that. So I wanted to pick your brain as a coach. How, how do you uh, facilitate great batting? What is it you do to sort of help shape people into great batters? Well, um, yeah, I can't, I can't really take credit for it, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think what we I think what we do is we let the kid hit. You know, um, I, I I like being aggressive and I don't like restricting guys and I I think there's a lot of college programs that, that try to try to fit each hitter in a nice you know a nice tight box of execution style hitting and we just kinda let them let them bang the ball around. And uh, we'd let them be aggressive and, and we don't you know, we don't we don't work on a lot of small, small ball stuff. So I think they, I think that from a from a philosophy, philosophy standpoint helps. And then the other thing we do is we work a ton. Best place I've been, we work a ton on the method game. So um, we work a ton on just getting them in the right frame of mind before every at bat. I think guys struggle when they carry a bat from a bat to a bat. They can't get to the next pitch. And the the best hitters that I've worked with have really taken that um, that that game stuff at all. So uh, that's interesting to me. That so yeah, you guys don't don't generally uh, uh, adjust the 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 stance or the swing. You let them kind of have at it, and but you uh, encourage them to be uh, encourage them to be aggressive at the plate and. It's it's more of a mental thing you're uh, you're coaching than the physical, eh? Yeah, yeah, and I because I think when you deal with college players, the the difference in college players is going to be obviously going to be more some kids are more talented than others, but if if all things being equal, then they then if you give them a good mental game base, then they'll be able to outperform the people they compete against, and so that's what we really work on a lot here. And as far as uh, prepping or training is for batting, do you do you have things that you feel are the most most fertile fertile for gaining improvement in your players, like time on the tee, or is it you know BP with the soft toss, or or what is it, or is it just pure get them out there in a game situation, and that's the best uh, best lesson as far as how to hit the ball. Um, yeah, I think the closer you can get to game game like pitching, the better. We we have hack attack pitching machine that that we ramp up and um, you know we're we're not taking overhand coach batting practice all day or hitting these or firing it up at at eighty eight to ninety and and forcing guys to a good swing off of it. And we throw you know we have we we program sliders and breaking balls and. 
they get to learn how to hit a good breaking ball and how to, you know, what the difference between a good breaking ball and a bad breaking ball is. Um, I think that pitch recognition is probably really huge. Um, but yeah, I think I think that's what we try to do the ball. Yeah. Now the one limitation uh, with using the pitching machine. Um, like as you mentioned with the slider, the curve, whatever. Uh, obviously, they're seeing the rotation on the ball, but they don't see that delivery out of the live human pitcher hand. Is that a big deal, or? Yeah. See, for for us, we that was the other thing we do. We talked a lot about. That. So, um, we teach them how to time, how to change their timing based on the delivery, and and every pitcher is different. So. We use that. We actually use that difficulty and then finding timing to our advantage by telling them that uh, sometimes you're not going to be able to time the way you'd like to. So you've got to time up the ball. And, and you know, the way we work with our mental game and our elite mindset here, uh, they respond well to that because they understand that it's, it's a worthy challenge and it's not just, something that's wasting their time or difficult. Like, anything that we do difficult here is is, is good, and 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 we frame it like that. You know, if you've got adversity, good. If you, you know, if the mound, if the mound isn't groomed properly, good. If it's too cold, good. Um, and I think that helps them deal with that coaching stuff. Yeah, that's, that's like an adage in coaching and teaching, right? Like, you have to be out of your comfort zone. You don't want to be that that part where it's catastrophic, you know, frustration all the time. But you have to you have to get into that frustration zone to be uh, moving forward. Um, here's here's a question for you too, as a D one coach. Uh, we know in Major League Baseball right now, it is unbelievable the amount of you know scouting information. Like even me sitting in Hanover, Ontario, I can go online and access phenomenal amounts of detailed information on any Major League pitcher. And, you know, we all see them when we're watching TV where, you know, the, the batting coaches are sitting down with the players with the huge binders. Where is it at development-wise in, in NCAA Division One? How much of a book do you have on the other pitchers? Or is it mostly going back to the old-fashioned, you know, wait till you play them and get a sense of, of what's going on once you play them? Or, or how much do you have on paper before you actually play them? Yeah, I mean, I think that would vary by... Level in that if you're South Carolina versus Florida, you're going to have a lot of games on TV. So you'll be able to review video, you'll be able to write notes, you'll be able to have information on that kind of stuff. Um, for, for us, even though it's the two Division one, we still have to beat those teams. So that the teams we play against, there's really nothing to look at. You can talk to other teams and see what they thought about other teams pitchers or hitters, but it's sometimes, for us, sometimes and for the guys, it's, hey, let's just size them off. Let's go get them. You know what I mean? Uh, let's not overthink this thing. And sometimes the information is wrong. It's actually worse to be wrong about information than to not have it at all. <laughs> so, it's, it's true, yeah. Well, like, it's so, kind of, as you're saying, the overthinking can sometimes hold you back a little bit, like... I always wonder, like we saw, for instance, a few weeks ago, Rowdy Tellez, when he made his major league debut for the Jays a few weeks ago, you know, he never hit the ball better in his entire life, right? Because he was fresh out of the gates and probably it was a benefit. And you often see that. There's been a bunch of Jays, but just in general, you see a lot of players when they get that call up 
uh, all of a sudden have that little. Now, of course, part of that's adrenaline for being in the bigs and realizing oh, the yeah. dream, but yeah. Yeah, and with Rowdy, I mean, he had no, there's no pressure when you get called up. You know, I watched, I watched Rowdy play probably five games here in Buffalo, and he was definitely overthinking it then. <laughs> oh, he was overthinking it, yeah. Yeah, and he's been through a lot, too, there with his uh, his mother passing away after an illness that uh, kicked in last yep. year there. But he's uh, he's been through an awful lot in a short period of time, that young man. Um, yep. and, yeah, and he, I mean, it's crazy, though. You go up and just go off. Yeah. It's, uh, it's amazing what you can do when, when there's, there's no expectation. Yeah. Now, are, are you on a Bluetooth right now? Because uh, you're kind of cutting out on, on us every now and then, so... I don't know if... Uh, uh, nope, I'm talking straight into my phone. Oh, you're talking straight in. Okay. All right. Uh, it's probably just got a feed that's uh, it's up and down a little bit on us. Now, speaking of uh, great batting performances here, too, just like Rowdy's uh, from a few weeks ago, uh, Greg Cullen, um, he was a major league draft pick last year out of the Niagara University program, uh, drafted by the Atlanta Braves. And uh, he led the NCAA in batting uh, this past season. Uh, tell us a little bit about Greg. Yeah, Greg, um, you know, like we knew he was going to be a good hitter. I, every time we saw him, he hit, you know. Like, and then we ended up getting him the man, and, he, and we kept watching him. And every level he was ever at, he was the best hitter at that level. Um, not in my wildest dreams, but I think he would be the best hitter in the NCAA, but, um, you know, he, he's a kid that was always, he always loved just playing baseball, and he loved learning and wanted to do as good as he could, and he really took to the mountain game, and, and he's, if you watch or, or read any of the interviews that he had, he credits a lot of that to just walking to the plate slowly with big body language, <laughs> Which is something that we we talk about here, and um, it just gave him slowed the game down and gave him the control that he needed every at bat to be at his best. And um, you know, to his credit, he used every tool in the tool bag to do what he did. Yeah, hitting four fifty eight is pretty remarkable because uh, the, the the quality of pitching he's facing to to do that against is pretty uh, impressive. Yeah. Um, Next, I was going to ask you about uh, a Blue Jays prospect that was uh, drafted uh, in 2017, uh, Canadian kid. Um, so he gets extra, extra points from us for that right there. <laughs> uh, played for Vancouver this past year and hit a really respectable 280 in uh, in single A ball. And uh, we're talking about Tanner Kerwer. Yeah, Tanner, Tanner was uh, he was a neat recruit. I watched him at the Canada Games in uh, probably 2012 or 13, something like that, maybe 14. And, uh, he, uh, he, was just, he just flew around the field. He was always playing hard and getting dirty, and then I, I followed up with him at the Tournament 12. It was the first T-12 that the Blue Jays had, I think. And, uh, you know, he's at a showcase event, and he's He's getting hit by pitches and stealing bases and playing real hard. So he was for sure with Park Alberta. So I, I, I was like, where did this kid from? Uh, and we were the only ones to recruit him, but he was an unbelievable athlete. And then he got here, the minute he got here, I, I, I 
were talking and and felt like he had he was going to be a pro player before he was done. So he got a ton better and up working hard, developing, and got drafted by his dream team. So real spark plug, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's an electric player. I think you know if he can if he can improve his strikeout to walk ratio and cut down on some of the some of the strikeouts, but he's got he's got a, he's got the athleticism to play in the big leagues. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I hope he I hope he makes it. Rob, uh, just leading into that, when we're talking about Kerwer, uh, how do you go about scouting up here? I mean, this is a vast land from sea to shining sea. Uh, you know, how do you beat the bushes and find these kids? Well, it's, it's actually getting easier, and it's it's not crazy how it works. But first of all, my assistant coach Matt Spadafora is, is from Scarborough, and he's he's my guy. He's got the entire country on lockdown. <laughs> um, he he's in regular contact with the best programs, talking about the Langley Blades, the North Shore Twins, the Vauxhall Academy, Okotoks Prospect Prospect Academy, Team Sask. You know, working all the way, you know, into Ontario with the PBL, the PBLO teams, and then the even the contacts we have out east. Um, and he he's constantly watching videos and looking at rosters, and we go to Tournament 12, we go to Canada Cup, we, um, we go to the prep baseball report events, we go to, we'll, we'll visit the academies in the fall. Um, we spend a lot of time up there, and, and with our relationship with the coaches of these organizations, we're able to, you know, get either their players or, or players that they've played against or seen. So you basically have your finger on the pulse then by the sounds of it. I would think that we've got it as much as anybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As, uh, it's kind of uh, between you and Canisius. Uh, I, I've noticed you guys traditionally have a very high uh, number of Canadians on your rosters at any given time. But what really impressed me is uh, like you guys, you have guys on your roster from BC and, you know, Tanner Kerr, we're a recent guy there from Alberta. And so it's not just Ontario where you guys are crossing over the border, but you're actually, you know, on the, having tabs on players from all across the nation. So it's quite impressive that way. Yeah, yeah. So, Rob, uh, traditionally, the route to the majors is get signed out of high school or drafted, go into the minors, and try to work your way up. But we're seeing more and more kids coming through the NCAA, uh, is that becoming a more preferred route? And uh, if so, are you gonna, do we see uh, more of a change that way and it become more the uh, mainstream way of going about getting your way, getting to the majors? Yeah, it's, it, yeah and that's a very good observation. It is, it is going that way, I think. It, and there's, a, there's a many reasons for that, but the one reason that... The, couple, the main couple reasons that we talk to kids when we talk to them about that is, you know, the average time for a prospect in minor league baseball is three years. And you want to leave home at 18, um, you know, go play against, uh, you know, grown men, uh, put your time in for three years, you know, and, 
and and that's going to be your formative years in pro ball. Get released at 21, or do you want to go to the NCAA? Uh, you know, in which uh, the NCAA schools are doing a great job developing players now. Actually, in some cases, they're doing a better job than say rookie ball is. Um, and you know, get better there, get drafted, then go into pro ball for your minimum five years. And now um, and have realized a lot of your grown man body, so to speak, your your maturity, you you've developed, you've learned, you've you've kind of cut the gap there, and it's a, it's a real thing where you know I I tell kids you want to want to play pro ball or do you want to be in the major leagues because sixty uh, percent of major leaguers from the U S have gone through four year college at some point. Um, so it definitely favors to put put in those three or four years, then get drafted, and then be older when you're trying to compete against grown men for you know a spot on a on a on a on a team. Yeah, absolutely. That uh, we watched that in the spring training uh, this year. The Jays played the uh, Canadian National Junior Team, and some of those kids that they were going up against, while well, Roy Halladay's son pitched uh, an inning. Yep. And uh, I know I've got a daughter the exact same age, and I couldn't imagine putting her out in the, on a mound to face you know grown men like that. It just right. uh, going a different yeah. route seems to be the, the the way a better way. Mm. Plus, you get an education, right? Yeah, absolutely. And an interesting an interesting story was we we signed out of Kingston, Ontario, which you, you guys something you're off. He was 150 pounds, um, 6'1", 150 pounds, lightning quick arm, um, developed to the point where some pro scouts were showing interest and wanted, you know, hey, what would you sign for? And he called me because they'd already signed their letter of intent, and he was asking me about it. I said, well, you know, and, you know, very shy kid, very homebody-ish, you know, Great family, uh, really tight knit family. And I just said, "Do you like? Do you are you? Is your dad going to move down there with you? You know, are you are you going to go down by yourself at eighteen <laughs> and and try to navigate life right now, or do you think you need to grow up a little along with get a little bit better in baseball? You know, and." And that was a deciding factor for him, basically. He didn't end up getting drafted because he gave him a number that was too high for them to sign him. But, um, you know, and, and now that kid, Matt Brash, who he was a freshman All-American for us two years ago, is going to get drafted this year. And then now he's 21, and I can't even tell you the maturity that he's gained since he's been here. In a much better place to be successful, eh? That's interesting because uh, if you use hockey as a comparison, too, um, I don't think it's ever going to replace, you know, the OHL or the CHL as a development league, but there has been a slight increase in NCAA um, percentage of players coming through the NCAA route and not just playing one or two years, but playing their full four years. And there's some teams very decidedly are uh, increasing their their premium on players that have their four years out of NCAA because it's a much more known quantity. And even having said that, in, in hockey, I don't know about baseball as much, but 
even the players, their starting age going into their NCAA playing careers, you know, they're doing other things first. And uh, I guess in baseball, they, they, there's a lot of kids who will do junior uh, JUCO programs and then go into uh, 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 Division One or Division Two. So, but yeah, in the hockey, the the kids aren't necessarily starting at 18 and 19 in their NCAA careers. They're starting sometimes 21, 22, and then playing their four years. So it's a much, yeah. much more known quantity at the other end of it. Yeah, and, and, and like you said, that's exactly the nail on the head of the scout. If a scout can draft you at 21, he's more sure about what you're going to do than he is at 18. Yeah, I got to tell you, if I was, you know, for my work evaluation, right, I'd rather be uh, hedging my bets on the probability of uh, the 21-year-olds I, uh, I'm, I'm telling them to sign compared to the, the 18-year-olds, right? So no makes doubt. sense. Yeah, no doubt. Now, uh, taking the conversation in a slightly different direction here, um, we actually had Matt Mazurik on earlier this year, too, uh, head coach of uh, Canisius, uh, Canisius uh, program there. And uh, you, your schools are not too far apart there and uh, have a pretty good rivalry developing. So uh, tell us a little bit about the Canisius-Niagara uh, rivalry. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's healthy. It's starting to get healthier. I, I've told people around here, I mean, the two schools like to make big deal out of it. Um, and, you know, our record against them up until last year and the year before was just not good. So I, I said it can't be a rivalry if one team never wins. <laughs> so um, we, we've, we're we catching them. We're, you know, there's there's been a couple things that have happened. You know, they've, they've changed head coaches. Um, you know, we're doing, we're, we feel like we're doing a better job in Canada than we've ever done. And we're getting our program to a point um, where we're, we're going to compete with them year in and year out, and, and it's going to be a dogfight every year. So it's fun. It's, you know, it's fun. I, I've learned a ton in my life in coaching from Mike McRae, who was their head coach in Canadian, um, and be just from getting my butt beat by him. Um, you know, we thought we were on this they end up signing them early. We, you know, we, we think we're on the right track and it moves to its whatever. So it's been, uh, you know, it's been uh, having a problem right there to compete against, especially with the Canadians and Canadian recruiting. Yeah, it's kind of neat having them nearby. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Well, I tell you what, I, I, have a, I have a master's degree from Niagara. Um, I did a distance education, though. I've never set foot on campus, but... Uh, just, just, just on that pure, uh, that pure fact. I have that piece of paper. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say I'm, I'm landing on the purple eagle side of uh, the cheering, <laughs> and uh, we'll go from there. Well, I tell you what, uh, we're, we're gonna have to take our first break here in a minute or two. But uh, thanks for talking to us, Rob. It's been great. I uh, hope you guys have another great season. Hope uh, the the rivalry between Canisius uh, remains fun and uh, continues to uh, you guys uh, give them a good run and get your fair share of wins out of it. And uh, thanks so much for talking to us here. Awesome. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Great. Nice talking to you. All right, folks. So uh, at the other side of the break here, we're going to take a quick recess. And on the other side, we're going to come back with uh, some talk about the Montreal Expos and whether or not is the expansion dream possible. Is it true? So we'll talk to you in a few moments on Baseball Talk. This is local breaking news. Joy levels have reportedly increased in certain homes. 
people won't put their devices down and neighbors are speculating. Just in, people are bundling Eastlink's unlimited internet and TV for big savings. They're getting channels they really want with TV Channel Exchange and some are adding Wi-Fi perfected for more coverage, security, and parental controls for an additional $10 per month. You can even get signal from up here! Bundle and save. Make the link.ca. You really have to love Canadian summers. No worries, just enjoying the sunshine. That sounds wonderful, but how can you ensure you truly have no worries? By letting Germania Mutual Insurance do the worrying for you. They can protect your home, car, cottage, boat, and yes, even your dog. Germania Mutual Insurance. Protecting people's summers since 1878. Germania Mutual Insurance. A helping hand when you need it most. The Hanover Public Library and the Saugeen Artists Guild present Art Beneath the Autumn Sky, a gala fundraising event in support of the library on Saturday, October 13th from 7 to 11 p.m. Come and meet the artists, bid on the silent auction items, enjoy live music, and sample local wine, beer, and cider along with delicious appetizers. Tickets are on sale now at the library for $35 per person or two for $60. This is an Age of Majority event. Join us for a fabulous evening of Art Beneath the Autumn Sky. For more information, please call the library at 519-364-1420. It's Canada Wide Clearance Time at Hallman GM. Huge credits and or 0% financing on a wide variety of Chevrolet, Buick, GMC, and Cadillac cars, trucks, and SUVs. Also for this month, a Hallman GM exclusive. For every new vehicle sold, they'll include up to $300 in free accessories. They're the home of the $200 customer referral fee and offer special pricing for all OFA members. See dealer for details. Hallman GM, across from the racetrack in Hanover and at hallmangm.com. A family affair since 1960. Mayday, Mayday. This is Pleasurecraft Blue Knight. We have run aground off Murphy's Island. Two people injured. Roger, Blue Knight. This is Coast Guard Radio. We're sending assistance. Canadian Coast Guard Auxiliary Vessel, Sea Challenger. This is Coast Guard Radio. Over. This is Sea Challenger. Go ahead. For over, over a quarter of a century, Canadian Coast Guard Island. Auxiliary Volunteers have responded to maritime emergencies. Call toll-free 1-866-MAYDAY-2 to find out how you can help us go to the rescue. We save lives. Baseball Talk is brought to you by Joy for Sports, 435 Durham Street East in Walkerton, for all your sports needs. We're back, ladies and gentlemen, with Baseball Talk and Blue Water Radio 91.3 FM. Just want to point out that you can uh, also catch podcasts uh, of our programs after the fact. If you go to uh, Baseball Talk BWR at Podomatic.com. And uh, yeah, free available downloads. Uh, so if you want to listen to this later while you're out jogging or walking the dog or whatever you do, or you can actually stream it online too. You don't have to download it. You can just listen to, listen to it on your laptop while you're doing something else uh take a moment away from you know yelling at the kids or whatever uh, but uh yeah so uh, catch our podcast and uh next up we're gonna hit our clark ives and uh for our clark ives here i actually went to uh 1988 uh it's uh the freelance star which is from fredericksburg virginia which is a little bit ironic because uh where the expos ended up was not too far from there in washington 
Um, but this one actually was a, it was a season back before the internet. You know, we we packaged our information a little more differently because pretty much what it was is a season preview for 1988. But what they did is give a recap of 1987 <laughs> to try and give you an idea of where things might be going. But at that time in 1988, there's a lot of interesting things happening with the Expos. Uh, Tim Raines had uh, he held out for the first month of the season, and despite that, he had uh, 50 stolen bases, even though he sat out a whole month. 50, 50 stolen bases, I think that would, right now, would have him uh, major league lead. Uh, He'd be up there. I think, yeah, it's like, I couldn't tell you exactly, but I think it's in the 40s right now. Yep. And then there's a sharp drop-off after the first uh, one or two, after after you have a couple guys in the 40s. And uh, if I remember correctly, that was not a banner season for stolen bases for Tim Raines. Uh, I believe he broke the century mark a few times. Um, but at that point, Andre Dawson had been traded off to uh, the Cubs. Uh, Andres Galarraga was a young player on the rise, uh, had 13 homers in his second season. Uh, Tim Wallach, who was always steady and always very good, uh, he hit 298 with 26 homers and 123 RBIs. So he was starting to move forward. Um, Dennis Martinez and Pasquale Perez, there's a tandem, eh? They, uh, they joined the staff. So the Expos weren't expected to do much in 87, but with uh, El Presidente and Pasquale joining, uh, their starting rotation was quite respectable. Of course, they still had Bryn Smith. Uh, Neil Heaton and Floyd Yeomans also joined them. And uh, they had traded away Jeff Reardon in 87, and a lot of people thought that was super brutal move, but uh turned out okay. Uh, Heaton came back the other way and uh, was a very reliable starter for them. Bullpen had the likes of Tim Burke, Bob McClure, Andy McGaffigan, Jeff Parrott, and Randy St. Clair. And uh, they were 28-14 and 14 in one-run games, 12-1 and one in extra innings, which is very respectable, actually. That's... When you're getting into extra innings, to be 12 and one, that's uh, that's a confidence builder. Uh, from the fourth inning on, fourth inning on, the Expos blew fewer games than any other National League club. So yeah, that was what was going on in 1988 with the Montreal Expos. Uh, we'll post that on at Gray County Guy on the Twitter feed there if you want to read it at your leisure and pick up the details. But uh, we're using this to segue into some talk about, you know, we saw at the the All Star Game this year. It was held in Washington the former Expos franchise. And there was a pretty large contingent of uh, Expos fans in the, in the stands. Is this for real? Is it possible? Absolutely. I, th- I think so. Uh, our new commissioner, Rob Manfred, who's been around for a few years, is very forward-thinking. He wants to make this an international game, and Canada is included in that. He's also talked about Me- Mexico City. Something that is interesting, he's talked about Maybe more than one team being expanded to Canada. But Montreal is definitely at the forefront for expansion. I think overall, anybody anybody in the press that you hear talk about expansion, Montreal is, is top of the list. And uh, they just need a few things to kind of bring it all together. Basically, since the, the Expos left in 05, they, there's been a group driving the cause to bring the Expos back, to bring a team back to Montreal and to do it properly, which means not having a large cavernous stadium out in the middle of the St. Lawrence to play in, but a proper downtown park with proper ownership 
And uh, yeah, the big O is a big. It's a perfect example of bigger's not always better. Yeah. Um, when I was picking and choosing articles to put in for this Clark Ives, uh, I saw one that was going back to uh, it was around uh, seventy five or seventy six. Of course, I believe they moved into the big O in seventy seven, and it had been built mainly, you know, to bring the seventy six Olympics to town, and uh, it succeeded in that. But of course, they wanted a tenant afterwards. But one of the articles I was looking at was saying how the fans um, were actually fairly upset that they didn't want to leave Little Wee Jerry Park, which had a really rich history. And I believe it only um, seated maybe Mm 29,000. But fans were saying, okay, do what you can to get more people, more stands in here. But they loved the atmosphere. And we're saying that's kind of interesting. If you look at CFL football in Montreal, you know, it had died out a couple of times. You know, they'd become the Concord and disappeared and then the Alouettes disappeared a few times but the last time they came back they moved into they moved out of the Big O except for playoff games and they went into uh, McGill Molson Stadium there which they did everything they could to cram more seats into it over a few years I think now it, it I think they can get maybe 19,000 crammed in there but they also so, sell out every single game for yeah. I couldn't even tell you how many years it's been now, 12, 13 years, they've sold out and they have a waiting list of six, mm-hmm. 7,000 trying to get in there. that's with a brutal team right now, too. And that's with a brutal team. But it seems that in Montreal, anyways, smaller is better. They love that atmosphere of the open air and getting in there with your friends and family and watching a sporting event, the intimate. You're right up there face-to-face with the players and you see what's going on up close. So, and you know what? i got to be honest. I don't particularly love uh, watching games at the Sky Dome. Because I feel you're just so far removed from it. Like, you definitely need to make sure you're there with a good group of friends. Cause yep. You feel like you're in an airplane hangar. Yeah. That's what it, it feels like. Uh, you know, Montreal fans are very passionate. They're very loyal. You, even with the Habs being as bad as they've been the last few years, they're still selling out. And they still have their passionate fan base. And I, I believe that if they have a downtown stadium, likely needs to be have a roof of some sort uh they can bring fans back we've seen the experiment with the uh, preseason games that the jays have been hosting over the last few years Uh, it dropped off this year but they didn't hold it on a weekend they held it on a couple weeknights this year and uh the attendance dropped off a bit it's because people can't make a weekend of it and come from toronto right but uh there's there's a, a a need a want for baseball in Montreal. That's interesting too. Uh, you're saying like people's traveling in like because Vegas. One of the main ideas there was yeah that's a destination where people will fly in and, and watch those games. Um, when Montreal first left town and went to Washington, one of the big issues was a the Canadian taxes and the Quebec taxes. Um, but also the difference in dollar, Canadian dollar, American dollar. But to my mind, that wouldn't be as big a deal now because back then your top line players were, you know, maybe making one or two million a season, which isn't chump change. But when you're taking, you know, a huge percentage, let's say 30% taxation on a million dollars, when you're looking long term, that's a big difference in your life. But if you're making $17 million a season, <laughs> Yeah. Right. Or $21 million a season, you're probably going to be able to budget things okay and get by. Absolutely. Even if there yeah. is a bit of a. So I, I would say 
the discrepancy between the dollar and the taxation is not a big deal. And the other thing, too, is I'd say since the 1980s, the world has become, well, parts of the world have become a lot more multinational. We're more comfortable with that because a lot of people used to, you know, cite it as a concern that the French language part of things. But you don't hear any talk about that anymore. No, no, yeah. no, no. And I think, uh, you know, there's, uh, I think if you were to pay a guy $20 million a year, he'll say, yeah, you know what, I'll come up, no problem. Like it's maybe not as big a deal as it was years ago. Yeah. Hey, maybe, maybe actually part of that is uh, there's been such an influx of Hispanic players. Mm-hmm. So Spanish is such a predominant language there. So maybe just the fact that, okay, well, French is just yet another language in our whole soup of Major League Baseball because we also have how many Japanese players, we have how many Korean players. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, maybe uh, I think they're some of those sticking points that helped the team leave before. I think are no longer sticking points. Yeah. Now we did do a Twitter poll uh, earlier this year in July, and uh, it was talking about the expansion. What we had asked our baseball talk uh, audience was, in which city would you most like to see a major league expansion team? And some people joked Toronto because it's been that kind of season. Um, but uh, our, our cho- choices were Vancouver, Montreal, Las Vegas, and Nashville, and. Uh, Montreal did get a whopping 67% of that. And we actually had quite a bit of response to that Twitter poll. Uh, It seems to go up and down for us, but this one got a lot of interest. Um, 15% for Vancouver, 10% for Las Vegas, and 8% for Nashville. So let's turn the talk to Vancouver. If they did expand to more than one Canadian city, is it just a given that Vancouver would be option number two? I guess so. I mean... uh Someone has to be taking notice of the blue wave down at Safeco Field in Seattle whenever whenever the Jays go in there once a year and uh, have to notice the fact that the Let's Go Jays chants are much louder than the Mariners. Yeah, fans. there's quite often there's more Canadians, it seems, yeah, in the stadium. So I think that's probably, uh, if someone takes notice of that, well, maybe there's something going on up there that we could maybe tap into. And uh, thinking through, you know, the pluses and minuses, Vancouver has a rich history in baseball. It's uh, largely been Pacific Coast League. Uh, it's largely been minor league, but they right now have the Jays' uh, single-A team out there. But fairly consistently, uh, consistently, they've had pro ball. And the other thing is this. If you think about grouping and marketing, you know, there is such a mass cluster on the eastern board there with your Boston and Baltimore and New York. There's a lot of baseball and I don't think they're worried about anyone dividing the market out, so I don't think that's a big issue with the team going to Montreal. But I wonder, too, when they talk about travel and all of those things, uh, with so many teams in California and Seattle being there, they probably would be quite happy to have another team in the neighborhood because yep. it's not really... One I guess the Seattle. Divisions. Yep. Yeah, Seattle Seattle might take a bit of a kick uh, fan-wise, but you know, for the, the Angels and the, the Padres and the... Dodgers, they might like uh, having a few mm-hmm. more short flights as far as having yeah. teams to play. So um, Now, when we're looking at other possibilities on our poll, we talked about Vegas and Nashville. Beyond that, what, what else is on the... I, I was throwing out Portland because we know there's some big money there and there's a good numbers as far as uh, city demographics. Uh, where, where else might be a possibility? Uh, Rob Manfred's mentioned San Antonio and... Mexico City, which actually would be interesting to see a team down there. Uh, you know, there'd be a 
pretty big fan base. Uh, maybe a little bit different as far as uh, being a slightly underdeveloped country, I guess you, you may want to say. Uh, but there is a possibly a uh, potential there. They've had some exhibition games down there, and they've gone over quite well. Gone over well. There's certainly a huge population and the love of baseball is there. It would be a shock to me given the, you know, the political climate with you know, the presidency as it is right now, but we know that's not you know, going to be long-term, unless he does you know, manage to name himself Supreme Dictator, which isn't out of the question. But <laughs> I digress on the politics there. But, yeah, it would be interesting to see if they do move into Mexico. Uh, what we should probably do here is take our second break, and then we'll come on back and uh, talk a little bit more about uh, – some uh, expansion possibilities and then maybe talk a little Blue Jays and uh, we'll tell you what we have on tap for next week. So uh, come right back and uh, catch more baseball talk in a few minutes here. I'm Petunia the Clown. Whether it's a birthday, grand opening, picnic, or corporate event, I can make your gathering extra special with my unique blend of magic songs, balloon sculpting, and face painting. I also offer educational school shows, daycare shows, and personalized singing telegrams. Petunia the Clown serves all of Midwestern Ontario. For more details, check out petuniatheclown.ca. School's back and so are PA Day Adventures at Grey Roots. Children ages 5 to 10 can spend the day learning fun-filled activities, games, and crafts. This year, it's Raiders of the Lost Artifact. An artifact has gone missing. Can you put your detective hat on to search the museum, find clues, and solve the puzzle? The first adventure is September 28th. Registration is open now at greyroots.com. Bruce and Gray Counties are amazing places to live, but sometimes they can be difficult to get around and explore. That's where Soggy Mobility and Regional Transit comes in. Since 1977, they've specialized in public transit service to those with permanent or temporary mental and physical challenges within Bruce and Gray Counties. Finally, you have the ability to stay mobile. Life can be challenging. Let Soggy Mobility help. To find out more about smart services in your area or to register, visit SoggyMobility.ca and they'll see you soon. Tired of hard water wreaking havoc around your home? Dry skin and lifeless hair? Dull and dingy laundry? Soap scum and spotted glasses too? Hey, Colligan Man! A Colligan water softener turns hard water soft every time. Soft water is the answer. Not cleaning products or detergents. Colligan saves you up to 50% on soaps and detergents while turning your laundry, bathroom, and kitchen brilliant like me. Hey, Colligan Man! Hi, this is Steve Fruitman. Join me every Sunday afternoon between 3 and 5 p.m. for the 334578 All Vinyl Radio Show. Each week I'll be playing songs mine from my own personal record collection. If it's on vinyl, wax, or shellac, you just might hear it on 334578. That's the 334578 All Vinyl Radio Show with me, Steve Fruitman, every Sunday afternoon from 3 to 5 p.m. on 91.3 FM, Blue Water Radio. Baseball Talk is brought to you by Joy for Sports, 435 Durham Street East in Walkerton, for all your sports needs. We know our stuff. 
We're back, ladies and gentlemen. Baseball Talk and Blue Water Radio, 91.3 FM. You can catch our podcast, too, uh, on podomatic.com. We've been talking the possibilities of expansion, uh, whether it be Expo or Vancouver or otherwise. And I wanted to turn the talk. It's a topic I've had on the back of my uh, mind all season is the shift. Uh, Major League Baseball, Pro Baseball, there's big influence uh, by analytics and stats. Uh, some of it great, some of it not so great. Um, we talked last year how I, I felt analytics had steered people wrong when it came to stolen bases. Um, but we see in fielding, uh, we know home runs are big, walks are big, but we see averages are down, hits are down. And a lot of people are chalking that up to the shift where uh, they move one of those infielders. They, they play the probabilities on, on, on the batter, and they uh, sometimes move a shortstop completely over to the other side. They position players up the middle first of all generally what's your what's your view on the shift you know what it's not cheating it's uh if you start drawing lines on the within within the lines and saying you can't come out of these the space you're starting to manipulate the game so i'm okay with it i'm fine with that uh you hear a lot of analysts say hitters have to adapt and if you're a good hitter You'll figure out how to push the ball the opposite right. way. It seems to me, for instance, Guriel recently yeah. seems to be making he's he's one example yep. concerted yep. effort to, to get that but slap that ball the other still way. Quite a few players who aren't adapting, and it's kind of funny to see it. But I'm a big uh, fan of not touching the game as far as I agree the, with you hundred percent. Yeah, the, the commissioner coming in and start manipulating things i don't like the time clock things i don't like the limited uh visits to the mounds or anything like that so you know what it's not cheating it's just you have to adapt that's what it comes down to yeah and you know what and this is one case where i say the analytics is actually doing a great job and if they're being that much more efficiently uh efficient fielding good on them and it's kind of like the left wing lock right where people were talking Mm -hmm. about some bizarre rules it's like no if good coaching created it good coaching can break it right yep and i actually heard some analysts talking and there was a few of them you know former major league players former major league coaches they said oh they said you know what this shift you can puncture a lot of it if players were willing to bunt Mm -hmm. but we have so many big league players big cash players that are all about their stats and not necessarily team first yep. but they were basically saying yeah if if you got a lot and, and a lot of them there's two things some of them refuse to actually bunt kind of like mm-hmm. george bell <laughs> remember yeah. he used to refuse to bunt or some of them just pretend to be terrible at it so if they're called upon to do it mm-hmm. it's that whole thing like you know if you ask a teenager to wash the dishes they do such a terrible job you never ask them again it's, it's kind of like you've been to my house <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, my kids are still younger. I have that coming in my future, probably. But anyway, yeah, you see them, these otherwise highly skilled athletes who can crush a 95-mile-an-hour fastball, no problem. And then you ask to bunt, and then they're they're fumbling all over the place like they've never held held a bat before. But yeah, basically a lot of people were saying if you just bunt it away from it. And if you see, like, when you have the third baseman closer to second base, Mm -hmm. it comes down to how well your pitcher fields. And some pitchers are great at fielding, yep. and a lot of them aren't, right? Because they're mm-hmm. there for another reason. So if they're just willing to drop down the bunt regularly, mm-hmm. you're only getting a single out of it. But you know, at some point they have to adjust to it. So yep. 
Absolutely. I, and, and I wonder when that happens. Like, I wonder when you see, when does push come to shove and people say, all right, big money guys, you got to start dropping down some bucks. Yep. And then yeah. they move on to the next thing. Yeah. You know, the next uh, gimmick to to work against a, a batter or vice versa, you know? Yeah. And, and I got to tell you, like, if they have all this information at their hands, I'm glad to see it being put to good use. And as you said, the other, the other thing is not just necessarily dropping down bunts, but maybe some players have to be pushed out of their comfort zone to, uh, you mm-hmm. know, push the ball the other yeah, way. Absolutely. And that in the long run might actually force batters to evolve and become better. Maybe we'll start having more conversations about, you know, someone possibly pushing 400 again. I'm yeah. trying to think when was the last time we even had that conversation? Was it uh, George Brett or John Allerud? John Allerud, you're right. He did. He, he was he, in the high 300s for in, quite a while. He yeah. was into August, I believe, pushing 400, yeah. high 300s. And there's times when uh, I believe Rod Carew was, yes. he had some pretty, uh, pretty impressively high averages mm-hmm. too. Yep. And that's a whole other conversation we could have sometime. I, I don't know if we're going to see this again, but Rod Carew. He was kind of like uh, there was a uh, uh, Garth Orge was another one, and I was thinking of uh, Cecil Cooper. These were all batters that used the flat bat uh, swing, which you never ever see anymore. But no. you weren't at that point. Those guys would hit three or four home runs a season, but then they would also hit like three eighty because mm-hmm. uh, it was a very very efficient swing. Is basically having that flat bat because you're getting through the zone so fast, and they were slapping the ball all over the field, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly singles, doubles. But, uh, yeah, every now and then you'd see Rod Carew would be like, all right, yeah, it's, had my fun with that. I'm gonna, now I'm going to crank it up. Actually, this is a whole tangent, but Rod Carew, and as I mentioned that, there was a Canadian. I've got to review my facts and talk about this next show, but there was a Canadian that I believe played briefly in the NFL, um, passed away, and I forget what illness caused the demise, but... He donated his organs, and I believe it was either his liver or his kidneys ended up in Rod Carew. Really? Yeah. So yeah, I know a, Carew's had a heart or a heart transplant. Heart transplant. So yes. may, maybe maybe it was the heart yeah. then. I knew there were some. He's organs been very there. sick in the last few years. Yeah, but it was yeah. a Canadian athlete oh, really? that actually passed away, whose uh, hmm. organs ended up in Rod Carew there, really? and extended his life. So huh. that's a, we'll have to. I'll have to check my facts, and we can talk about that next week. <laughs> so we have about a, a minute out here, and. Uh, Next week we on tap, we have uh, Mike Lumley, who uh, is a top executive with the London Badgers AAA Development Program. And uh, he also uh, has some pro experience himself. He uh, made it all the way uh, to AAA with the Toledo Mudhens, who I always remember because there was a character on the TV show MASH. That Clinger. Clinger, yeah. Yes. And he used to wear a Toledo Mudhens because yep. his character was supposed to be from Toledo, Ohio. Yeah. So that's my... Uh, my main connection to the Toledo Mudhens. But, yeah, uh, we have Mike Lumley on next week, and uh, you're back yourself. I am back. Looking Fant- forward to it. Fantastic. So look forward to next week talking baseball talk on Blue Water Radio 91.3 FM.